Good morning to you. Um, welcome to Christ the King. I'm Clay Holland, the senior pastor here at Christ the King. You know, that song was about an episode that we have preached about. If you've been kind of hanging with us here in uh, the Gospel of March, when, uh, March, that's, see, you see, that was a Freudian slip right there. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, um, when uh, the disciples and Jesus were in the boat and the wind and the waves were upon them and they thought they were going to die and they asked him, you know, Jesus, why are you sleeping? Do you not care if we perish? And of course he cared if they perished. And with a touch, he healed the winds and the waves and brought peace to the sea. Uh, as we kind of go through these hard, you know, difficult periods of our lives, uh, what is our hope? That is really the question. You know, what are we really anchoring our hope and our hearts and our souls upon? That's, that's ultimately the question. That's really the question um, that Jesus is getting at here in Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, do turn to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning uh, on the front end that you might have to uh, dig out of your pocket and dust off your theology nerd hat just a little bit if it's gotten... Um, if you lost it, uh, we have some in the back, you know, like the masks. Um, you can just shake it off, put it on. Because this is, this is a tough passage, actually. And there's a lot here to chew on. Uh, so if you're brand new, um, you know, sometimes uh, well, there's a, there, we'll do our best on this one. Because uh, this one's hard. I'm just going to say it on the front end. So Jesus is going to help us. And we're going to read from chapter 12, um, starting at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us as we look into your word now and that you would give us hope for our lives in this world based upon the glorious future that we have raised with you. Amen. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Those are really famous words. They were written by C.S. Lewis. The very first time I heard them, it was quoted in a sermon I think back in 1994, it was a sermon that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. It was part of the path that God had set me on, actually, this sermon, to uh, call me into ministry. 
It comes from an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Weight of Glory, which you can find uh, in a little booklet called The Weight of Glory and Other Essays, which I highly recommend. His point uh, was that one of the great struggles that we have as Christians in the world is what he would really frame, C.S. Lewis would really frame, as a limited and kind of truncated Christian imagination. Because we get stuck in thinking that the things that are right in front of us are all that there is. That these things are ultimate. We get stuck believing that our pursuit of the things that are right in front of us constitute the greatest pursuits of our lives. And so if we can just you know, reach the pinnacle of business success or buy the right home in the right neighborhood or we can get our kids all the way through high school and you know, into a good college and they can manage not to do something so stupid in college that it prevents them from getting a job on the other end, you know, then we think that we have essentially, you know, succeeded. We have kind of reached those pinnacles. We have set about to, um, to reach these goals, and we've reached them. And Lewis would say that these aren't too strong desires. We don't ask too much from God. We actually ask too little from God. Our desires are too weak. He illustrates this point in a very famous quotation where he says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And one of those places where I think we lack a full, robust biblical imagination is in our understanding of heaven. In a 2017 Pew Research study, 72% of Americans who were surveyed claimed to believe in heaven. Now, they didn't define heaven in the survey, so it's probably more accurate to say that 72% of Americans surveyed in 2017 believe in some kind of an afterlife. But I think that if you ask, you know, a Christian that you meet, you know, uh, um, on the side of the road or in Starbucks or something, hey, do you believe in heaven? That person is very, very likely to say, yes, of course I believe in heaven. But then if you ask him or her to describe what heaven is like, you're going to get wildly diverse answers to that question. But my guess is that most of them that we would add, that you would get just simply from asking somebody would be something about heaven is the place that our souls go after we die. Heaven is the place that our souls go after we die. We inhabit this spiritual, kind of ethereal, kind of thing, place called heaven. But could it be that such a view, when it's limited to that view, which I think really does represent the, the, the majority of religious people that we, you and I might know, is the result more formation by cultural Christianity or a culture of religiosity than a rigorous examination of what the Bible actually teaches about our ultimate hope? Could this be a deep and tragic lack of a biblically formed imagination that has ramifications on how we live our lives in the present day and what we genuinely and ultimately long for as followers of Jesus. These are questions that lie at the heart of Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12. And the point is this. Unimaginable embodied 
glory lies in the future for all who belong to Christ. Unimaginable embodied glory lies in the future for all who embody, uh, for all who belong to Christ. And this is your ultimate hope if you're a follower of Jesus. And that hope informs the way that you live life right now. We see this as Jesus interacts with this group called the Sadducees in Mark 12. First in a faulty presupposition that leads to a false conclusion that transforms into a glorious culmination. So again, dust off the theology nerd hat, get them tight, here we go. The faulty presupposition. So first of all, who are the Sadducees? I'll never forget Sadducees because I learned a song when I was in middle school that talked about not wanting to be a Sadducee because Sadducees are sad, you see. Um, So if you ever have any struggle with Sadducees, just think about that. Sadducees are sad, comma, you see. Um, And they are, because they really have no hope, according to this passage, you know. But in some ways, it's helpful, I think, to think about these different groups within Judaism in Jerusalem, kind of like denominations, you know, that we have today. So you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, and they're all Jews, but they have different social and theological emphases. So it's kind of like, you know, in Christians in America, you've got Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and Episcopalians. They just have a little bit of different emphases. And two of the emphases of the Sadducees are very important to understand this passage. The first is this. The Sadducees believed that ultimate authority resided in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What they called, and we see in this passage, as the books of Moses, what other people, theologians, call the Pentateuch. For them, they're always appealing only to those books, not even the rest of the Old Testament. The first five books. Uh, And that gets to be very important. Now, the Pharisees, they appealed for authority to the entire Old Testament and the tradition of the elders that followed the Old Testament. So you don't really think of it this way when you're reading along in the Bible because the Pharisees kind of get the worst end of the deal often. But you can think of the Pharisees more as theological progressives and Sadducees more as theological conservatives. They were very, very, very strict on their authority being contained in not the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures but in those first five books, the books of Moses. Second, and related to this, the Sadducees denied the resurrection from the dead. In general, they denied any life after death at all. They believed that after a faithful person's death, the only thing that carried on was either um, their family name through the generations or their legacy. Uh, They did not see any teaching in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about the resurrection, so they didn't believe it. Jesus is going to challenge them on that from Exodus, in fact, in just a second. That's why that piece of the puzzle is important. And this explains the questions that they ask Jesus in verse 19, and it also explains why they reference this question with a command of Moses. Now, what the Sadducees are doing is they're taking a biblical concept, but they're turning it into a bit of an absurdity in order to try to trap Jesus and prove to him that the concept of the resurrection is foolish. Here's the situation. A man has a wife. They have no children, and the man dies. 
the brother of the husband takes that same woman as his wife. They have no children and he dies. This happens again and again and again seven times. Seven marriage weddings to seven brothers, no children. In the resurrection, they say, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Now, we know that this is not a, um, a, a, a question in good faith. Because they, we already know that they deny the resurrection. But this whole thing sounds very, very weird. But it is a biblical concept. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses teaches what is known as the Leverite Law. And it basically says this. That if a man and a woman are married and that man dies and they are childless, his brother or a close heir or a close relative, a close relative should marry her and try to uh, provide children through her. This has two aspects to it. It sounds very, very weird in our 21st century ears, but there are two main reasons for this. One is that it is there so that God's people, uh, Israel, the Jews, literally don't die out, that there is progeny that goes forward. But second, this is a law of mercy to a vulnerable population. If you read the Old Testament, I actually encourage you to read the Old Testament, uh, and you read the prophets, one of the reasons, uh, particularly like books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, they are telling God's people of Israel to repent is because they are refusing to show mercy. And he always, generally speaking, points out two vulnerable populations, widows and orphans. Their call is to be merciful to everybody, but particularly to widows and orphans. Why? Because widows and orphans were particularly vulnerable. A woman who's married to a man, if he dies and she remains a widow, had no means to provide for herself at that time and could literally starve to death. And so the idea of a close a brother or a close heir marrying her is an idea of mercy and justice to care for her in her vulnerability. This is the whole thing about the book of Ruth in the Old Testament and why Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, marries her, cares for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's an act of mercy. So this happens to this woman seven times, no heir. And they come to their drop-the-mic moment with Jesus, the Sadducees do. So, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Boom. And they walk away because they don't believe in the resurrection. They think they've made a foolproof argument to disprove it, right? And Jesus says this, is this not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Boom, you know, uh, Jesus can drop the mic too. He's getting at the faulty presupposition of the Sadducees, which is this. That if there were such a thing as a resurrection, for some reason it would be really important to know who this woman is married to. That's what they believe. They believe that because that's important and you can't figure it out, it proves that there's no resurrection. But their presupposition is based on the, pre, on, on the, on the assumption that that is actually important, right? And that leads to a false conclusion, And here we need to stop for a second and unpack what it is that Jesus says about marriage after the resurrection. And this is really hard teaching. And I admit that I could be, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm 99% confident that that, um, I'm pretty solid on this. But this is really hard, actually. 
And I remember this passage stressing me out when I was engaged, actually. I read this, actually, while I was engaged, and I thought to myself, so Jesus, what you're telling me here is that if Shannon and I get married, we walk out of this church and we get into this limousine, we're going to the reception, and we get into a wreck and I die, we're not going to be married? I mean, that stinks. Like, that was really, really stressful to me. And so, it may be stressful to you, too. So let's talk about this for just a second. First, and this is absolutely critical, we have to deal with this passage in terms of its context. Its context is the faulty presupposition of the Sadducees who don't even believe in the first place that there is such a thing as a resurrection. What they believe is the only way that there is life after death is in some symbolic sense by which a person's name and legacy is remembered for generations. So if you live a bad life, you get forgotten pretty quickly, we hope. But if you live a good life, your name and your reputation carries on you know, throughout uh, time. And this is the main aspect of marriage that Jesus is dealing with here. Marriage is a necessary precondition. This is true. Marriage is a necessary precondition under God's law, under the scriptures, for procreation. And procreation was the necessary precondition for someone's legacy to live on after they die. Marriage also, under biblical teaching, under God's law, restrains the sinful sexual impulses of human being and, and, beings and contains it in its rightful place. Within the bond of marriage between a man and a woman, where procreation is also the hoped-for outcome. This isn't just cute or quaint. We and Jesus believe that marriage is good and right and beautiful and permanent and it's the proper location for sexuality. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that at all. He denies this, that procreation and the restraint of sin are necessary after we have been raised from the dead and live in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now this is kind of a duff verse. Again, he's not making it easy on us. What's Jesus saying here? First, he is not saying that when a follower of Jesus dies, he or she turns into or becomes an angel. He's making a comparison between resurrected human beings and angels only with respect to the estate of marriage. That's all he's doing there. This is important to know because there's no biblical passage actually anywhere that teaches that we become angels after we die. Jesus says here that with respect to marriage, we're like angels who aren't married. Now, I want to pause here and, 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 and touch on something that, that might be sensitive and it might be highly personal to you. Because I know that some of you who are listening to this, and I absolutely know that many in our spheres of influence, many of our friends, many who are, are, are Christians, take great comfort in thinking of a lost loved one as an angel. I've heard this spoken about at many funerals. I've heard this told to people who have lost a, a child in the womb. 
Uh, and it is good to try to comfort people uh, with the resurrection of children that die in the womb because we do, of course, believe that those who die in the womb are human beings created in the image of God. But we should be very careful about the language that we use in bringing comfort to people for two reasons. The first is that the Bible does not teach that we become angels when we die. And we have to be very careful about talking, about using things that are not taught in the Bible as we comfort people. But second, the concept of a loved one who has departed this life becoming an angel actually sells short the glory of what is happening to them. What has happened to them and what will happen to them. It sells short the glorious hope of resurrected life and resurrection life by using the language, a folksy kind of religious language when you speak of death. Death is one of our great enemies. It is deeply, deeply, deeply painful, but it is not permanent. It's not permanent. And that is why the Apostle Paul tells us that we as followers of Jesus are able to grieve with hope. We grieve because death is painful and when we lose loved ones it hurts. It hurts at a deep visceral level. Yes, it hurts. But we grieve with hope because death will lose its sting. We grieve with hope for those who die in Christ because we know that death will lose its power. And sting in a glorious bodily, physical resurrection that is massively more powerful and massively more glorious than assigning angelic qualities to those whom we have lost. You can think about that. You can think about, think, if you are a woman in this room who has had a miscarriage, has lost a pregnancy, you will see that child. You will see that child physically present with you in heaven. A loved one, a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a child at any age. The hope is not that they've become angels. The hope is that they're now spiritually in the presence of God and one day physically will be in the presence of God. You will know them and see them and be with them and worship with them. That's the glorious hope of the resurrection. It leads to our last point, that glorious culmination. You see, if the purpose of marriage in the immediate context of this passage are procreation and the restraining of sin, this explains perfectly why it is that the Sadducees missed the point with the absurd dilemma that they proposed to Jesus. What? After the resurrection, you see, there's no need for procreation because there's no death. You don't need to perpetuate the generations. The generations live on for all eternity. And after the resurrection, there's no need for sin to be restrained. Why? Because there is no sin. So in this age, we are both mortal and sinful. And marriage meets and marriage cares for both of those aspects of our fallen humanity, even though it wasn't created before our fallen humanity, but it does deal with that in the present right now but in the age to come we are both we are immortal and holy therefore marriage is unnecessary in the age to come not relationships not love not physical touch not knowing who it was that we were married to not knowing our parents and not knowing our children none of that he said doesn't deal with all of that he doesn't deal with all those questions he deals 
with our state of perfect sinful holiness in the resurrection in this passage. And then he proves it. He proves it. This is the this is the Jesus Jesus is amazing. He proves it from a source of authority that the Sadducees would accept. The book of Exodus. One of the first five books of the Bible, one of the books of Moses, where the Sadducees derive their ultimate source of authority. See, he talks about the first time that God, that Yahweh, appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. Listen to this in verse 28. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What's Jesus saying here? Well, it's kind of tough, but this I think is what he's saying here. Jesus is making his appeal here to Yahweh, to God, introducing himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the point that Jesus is making is this. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Although something we know because we've read Genesis Before we get to Exodus, we've read Genesis. We know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead and buried, and we know where they are because the Bible tells us what cave they're in or their bodies are in. But God comes to Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. What's he saying? He's saying that somehow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Not just that their legacies live on or their family name lives on. They are still of the living, although they are in fact dead and buried. But the resurrection hasn't yet taken place. So where are they? And here's where we come to the crux of the biblical teaching about life after death. or Actually what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. If you are in Christ... Meaning you have placed your faith and your trust in him. When you die, your body goes to the grave. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But your soul immediately and consciously proceeds into the very presence of God himself. You know that you are in his presence. You know it. You are consciously present with God. You become, in that sense, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In Mark 12, you are of the living, though your body is in the grave. But this is a temporary situation, what theologians call the intermediate state. It's not the end of the story, even though this is where I think most Christians believe that the story ends. It's not your ultimate hope. Your ultimate hope is resurrection. When Jesus returns... When all things, things on heaven and things on earth and things under earth have been fully and finally brought under his feet. When death has been destroyed along with Satan, your body will rise and be reunited with your soul. And you will inhabit for eternity a physical new heavens and new earth. 
in the presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is embodied right now. Have you ever thought about that? Did you all know that right now Jesus has a body? That he never lost it again after he rose again from the dead on the third day? Jesus has a body. And our hope and our ultimate, uh, our ultimate trajectory is that we will dwell with him in his house forever in that embodied perfect state. The Sadducees didn't believe this. The Sadducees were, as Jesus said, quite wrong. Thank God for that. But how do we know that this is going to happen? How can we have confidence in this? Well, because just a few days after this encounter with the Sadducees, Jesus proved it. He didn't just say it, he backed it up. He backed it up by rising again from the dead on the third day. A resurrection that the Apostle Paul tells us is a down payment for your resurrection and life with Christ. So the question is this, do you know this hope? Are you leaning into this hope? Are you living into this hope? In the midst of all of the uncertainties of our lives, and there are many confusing and contentious days regarding physical health and what to do or not to do about it, Confusing and contentious days regarding the political future of our nation. Uh, confusing and contentious days regarding issues of race and social unrest. Uh, confusing days about the economic uncertainty in many of our lives and in our city. What's there to ground in? What's there to hope in? Well, we know we can't put our hope in those things because they all go away. We can't put our ultimate hope in our bodies. They won't last. We can't put our ultimate hope in any human leader because they're human after all. We can't put our ultimate hope in uh, building for our li- ourselves a life of comfort and ease. That can be taken away just like that and always is. The only sure and certain hope that we have is in Christ our Lord and the glorious resurrection and life with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that your hope this morning? Is that your hope? If it's not, it can be. It can be right now. It can be simply by coming to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Come to Him. Know and receive and lean into and live into the power of God. It is your only lasting hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the hope that we have, the resurrection hope that we have that is proven and demonstrated to us in the power of Christ being risen again from the dead on the third day. Help us live into and lean into that hope by your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.